We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success like happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself. These are the immortal words of Viktor Frankl, Austrian psychiatrist, philosopher, author, and Holocaust survivor. Today, we're going to discuss his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, and how it can help us find meaning at work. After all, it's where we spend most of our time. Hello, I'm Andrew Marshall, and my witness today on The Meaningful Life is Elaine Dundon, who is a founder of the Global Meaning Institute, a think tank offering strategic advice and education to businesses and international organizations. Elaine began her career in marketing and brand management at Procter & Gamble and is the author of a series of books on meaning with her husband, Alan Patakos. We're going to talk about one of her books, Prisoners of Our Thoughts, which is built on Viktor Frankl's principles to discover meaning in life and work. Welcome, Elaine. It's great to have you here with me today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm very happy to be here and, of course, to discuss the important topic of meaning. Now, let's start off, first of all, by just introducing who Viktor Frankl is, because I think a lot of people will know, but there are going to be some people who are going to be going, Viktor who? So tell me about him. Okay, Viktor Frankl was an incredible man. He was born in 1905 and passed away in 1997. He was a psychiatrist in Vienna. And probably his most important contribution, we would say, is his experiences from an unfortunate situation of being in four Nazi concentration camps during World War II. But out of that negative experience came an incredible discipline and a field of what he created called logotherapy, which is therapy through meaning. So his most important work, his contribution was that no matter what happens to us, we always have the freedom to choose our attitude. And so if we could imagine in today's world, you know, we complain about the recent challenges with COVID, which are very significant for some people, but we also complain about being locked down, saying that we can't go out to restaurants or we can't go out to movies. And we complain about our takeaway food or et cetera. And we can imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of Victor Frankl and walk in the experiences he had in the four concentration camps, you had no clothes, you were given clothes, a uniform to wear. You had no Netflix, you had no movies, you had no entertainment, you had no technology, you ate whatever soup, food they gave you, little pieces of bread, etc. And I think a lot of us can't relate to being stripped of all our comforts, I would say, of day-to-day life. And And all control of our life. Exactly. But some of these people who were there with Frankel found meaning that there were some people who actually went around giving their bread to other people he writes about. Exactly. Some of his great wisdom was he would wake up every morning knowing that he could survive the day and it would pull him forward to survive the day and find joy and meaning in even the smallest interactions with other prisoners. And even with the guards, he was known for interacting and helping the guards with some of their psychological issues. So he was an incredible man. And so we've learned a lot from his approach to finding meaning in the moment. So you read him as a teenager. What was the impact on you? Well, that was an interesting, it's really in hindsight that I realized all these pieces of my life were dedicated to the search for meaning. So when I was young, as a teenager, I read the book Man's Search for Meaning, which is a classic. It's one of the top 10 books in the Library of Congress of all time. 
and I would just say it's an incredible book that I would encourage all of your listeners to get a copy to read because no matter where you're at in your life, how you read it is going to give you different messages. So I read it as a teenager and then I read it later as an adult and I got different lessons out of it, obviously, from where I am in my life. So what did you get out as a teenager and what have you got out of it later? Okay, as a teenager, it was interesting. I'm going to keep this short. I had a happy childhood, but I was brought up to think that life was really a straight line and <laughs> you would just continue and just have these experiences and enjoy life. And when I Oh, was, dear. Yes. Well, it was, you know, maybe we'll say it was sheltered and maybe some parents believe that's a way to provide a sheltered, comfortable life for their children. But unfortunately, when I was 12, my mother had cancer and that was a big Uh. jolt. And that really shook me off my life as a straight line type of living. And I realized that life is short and there's got to be more to life. And so I was a little bit more, I'll say, philosophical about life than some of my friends at school that were going through the same challenges in the family. And especially back then when cancer was not discussed and it was a secret and there wasn't a lot of the psychological support and that sort of thing. So I was drawn to books. I can't remember what age exactly as a teenager I read Man's Search for Meaning, but I began my journey of looking for books to help me through and help me put life into perspective. And what do you make of it today? What does it speak to you about today? Well, that's a huge question because Man's Search for Meaning relates to how I met my husband, Alex Patakos, and how we got both together on this journey of writing Prisoners of Our Thoughts. So my life journey up until I met Alex was both, as I said, as a teenager, I started this path of self-discovery at the same time having one foot in conventional business life. And I was really drawn to a career in innovation, which is looking for new ideas and new approaches. And I had started a company called the Innovation Group. I taught innovation management at the University of Toronto. I wrote a best-selling book on innovation and creative thinking. And so I was really open to looking at discovering the quest for meaning and the best fulfillment in life through my career, but also on this self-discovery path. And then I met Alex Patakos, who was also on a parallel path. His background was in government and public service, but also looking at this self-discovery. And he had the great fortune and the honor to meet with Dr. Frankel in his house in Vienna. And he had corresponded with Dr. Frankel several times, and he still keeps in touch with the Frankel family. And so the Man's Search for Meaning book is a foundation of both our lives. And it had a profound effect on me when I read it, probably when I was around about 40, somewhere between 40 and 50. And in a way, it's how I've come to this point where I'm doing a podcast on the subject of what makes life meaningful, because I think it's an important question to ask. And what drew you to the book, Man's Search for Meaning? The fact that basically every second or third book that I ever read seemed to point to it. You know, somebody would say, oh, and I found this interesting in this book, and then I found that interesting in this book. And, you know, when something like five different people have said, you must read this book, (laughs) then that's generally a very good sign that you must read it, because I think everybody gets something different out of it. I think I've read it twice. The first half is all about his personal experiences, which is very moving. And the second half is about his philosophy. Some people don't find that so interesting, but I think that that's really the the meat of the piece. Did you find, and the two times you read it, did you find different lessons in it or was it just a reinforcement of what you had learned before? I think the most important thing I learned both times around, which is something that we're going to be talking about a lot, is that you can choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Perhaps we should unpack that thought at this point. Why is that so important and what does it mean? Well, it's really the core of Viktor Frankl's work, well, his experiences in the camps and in the book Man's Search for Meaning. And it's actually, if I can just hop forward a little bit, we wrote a book called Prisoners of Our Thoughts. Prisoners of Our Thoughts. And it's available in 23 different languages. It's in the third edition. Alex Patakos wrote edition number one and two. 
And then I came in on edition three and we rewrote the book and brought in meaning in life, work and society and also spoke about Viktor Frankl's continuing legacy. And so what Alex had done is he took all of Viktor Frankl's many articles and books that he wrote. Alex is the only one who's done this is he's distilled seven core principles of Viktor Frankl's local therapy. And he's distilled them into seven easy to apply principles, both for your life and work. That's just a bit of a preamble. But to answer the core principle, number one is exercise the freedom to choose your attitude. So like in all circumstances, no matter how desperate they are, like Viktor Frankl experienced in the camps, and maybe we're experiencing things like job losses or financial losses or divorce or health challenges. So no matter what situation we are facing, we always have the ultimate freedom to choose our attitude. So no matter if we think life is happening to us, and other people are impacting us, we always have the ability to choose our own reaction to it and our own attitude toward it. Because we can take something horrible happening to us as life-throwing slings and arrows, or we can say, what can I learn from this? And that's a choice, isn't it? Yes, it is. As I circle back, you know, when I was younger, I thought life was a straight line. And I think a lot of us in our younger years think, okay, well, I have my teenage years. I had a lot of fun, maybe. Maybe I had challenges. Maybe I'll go to school, then I'll get a job, and then I'll get married. And then life is a straight line from 30 to 80. And we really, actually, life is not a straight line. And we really need to realize that in resilience is really the whole essence of attitude and how we're going to choose our attitude. So what was the attitude of Viktor Frankl when your husband said, I'm going to use your principles to write a book for businessmen? Well, it's actually not for business. It's for general life and work. But I understand what you're saying. Alex had the great pleasure of sitting with Viktor Frankl and discussing a lot of his ideas and his philosophy and his experiences in his home in Vienna. And when Alex said, I'd like to distill all your life work into seven principles in this book that I'm thinking of writing, Victor Frankl leaned across to Alex and grabbed his arm and said, yours is the book that needs to be written, which is words that are etched on Alex's soul forever. It was just, you know, it's not just, to use the word motivated, excuse me, I get choked up about that. Just to use the word motivated to write the book, it was a spiritual connection where he felt so encouraged by Victor Frankl, but also blessed like uh, the blessing that he could take all his work and write it in such a profound way. And the Frankel family has been in touch with us since then. Ellie Frankel, which is his wife, she's in her 90s in Vienna. She called us in our home in Santa Fe to thank us for helping promote Victor Frankel's ideas. She still lives in the same apartment that they lived together in Vienna. And actually in the same building is the Victor Frankel Museum. So Alex keeps in close contact with Franz, who's his son-in-law, and Alex Fiese, who's his grandson. So you've called the book that we're talking about Prisoners of Our Thoughts. In what way are we prisoners of our thoughts? I think everyone can answer that in different ways. But first of all, it's the awareness. We always have a smile on our face when we tell people or we share with people that we wrote a book called Prisoners of Our Thoughts. And I remember being in an airport and saying to one fellow, well, we wrote a book called Prisoners Over Thoughts. And he said, my wife could use that. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that is so indicative. It's always someone else who could use this book. So whether it's my spouse or my friend or my sister or my boss, or etc., someone else can always use this book. Maybe it's really us that could use a book. Give us an example when you've been a prisoner of your thoughts. You've been limited by your thoughts. Oh, I've been limited. That would take more than an hour, Andrew. Just one <laughs> yeah, example I mean, then. I would say in personal relationships is probably the area that I'll say I struggle with and I need to have greater awareness that I have kept people as a prisoner of my thoughts in the fact that I think that they're always going to act or react the way I think they're going to based on my 
view of who they are and who they've been in the past versus realizing that people evolve, people learn, people change the way they approach life. And so I know myself, I'm not the same person I was when I was a teenager or in my 30s or 40s of how I react because I've learned through experiences and to hold other people prisoner of my thoughts because they've reacted one way 20 years ago doesn't mean they're going to react the same way. And it's amazing how our thoughts can limit us. I'm just thinking at this precise moment of my struggle with learning the German language because I live in Berlin. And I have to stop myself from thinking this is a blooming complicated language. It has so many rules and adjectives have to agree and they decline and prepositions set off what case they're going to. I could talk about this forever. And if I keep on telling myself it's an incredibly difficult language, then I'm handicapping myself. If I can think of it as a beautiful language or having a certain logic to it, then I'm actually less imprisoned with the idea that I'm never going to actually manage this. And yet, you know, this morning I ordered some contact lenses over the telephone and I had some quite complicated questions asked to me and backwards and forwards. And I had a couple of points I needed to make and I did it all with absolutely no problems at all. So, you know, I can do it, (laughs) but I have to be very careful because I can be very easily the prisoner of this idea that German is too complicated for me. Yes. And a lot of what our prison is has to do with our egos and how we also have our self-image of what we should be achieving at a certain time or that things shouldn't be this difficult, etc. So a language is an important example. Now I'm forgetting the person's name, so I will apologize, but there is a teacher I read about that teaches foreign languages and she asks her students to assume a different identity for the class. So you would assume a great warrior's identity and you would use that name because then it's not you learning passing or failing in learning a new language. It's you as this great warrior who's learning the language. And so it's a great way to get out of being a prisoner of your own thoughts. I should be Victor, who's going to find meaning in this blooming language. Exactly, exactly. It's like, as with Alex's experience with Dr. Frankel, Alex always feels that he's standing on the shoulders of Dr. Frankel and Dr. Frankel has helped him reach new heights. And so all of us can, in the same way, not be a prisoner of our thoughts and stand on Victor Frankel's shoulders. Okay, so let's look at this in particular at work, because we spend such an awful long time at work. If we can't find any meaning in our work, that's a huge chunk of our life that hasn't got any meaning. Now, here's a quote from Frankel. I'm convinced that in the final analysis, there's no situation that does not contain within it the seed of meaning. So if we have got a job that we don't like, that you know we're just going there to earn the money, how do we find meaning there? Well, that is a great question. And that's a question that many people ask. And in Viktor Frankl's perspective, Alex's perspective, my perspective, it's really just changing the way you view your work. Many of us could work just for the money, but that's such a, I'll say, sad situation where you're being disconnected to who you truly are as a human being if we just look just at the money situation. And so if we change our perspective and say, yes, I'm here to get money to pay the mortgage or pay the bills or to support my family, et cetera, which are all very noble causes, maybe we should be looking at work as a chance to interact with other people. So you might not actually like the task you have to do, or you are only doing it for the money, but let's not discount the chance to interact with other people on your job and have enjoyment through other people. So some people say, I don't like my job, but I need the money, but I really love some of my coworkers. And so we say, okay, shift your focus of attention to the things that you do enjoy during the day. I think it's also expectations. A lot of times we enter work and expect that work fulfills us because our personal lives are not fulfilling us. And so we're putting so much pressure on our work environment or our work culture or work experience to fulfill us when we're not having a full fulfilling life in other aspects of our life. And I suppose it's the opposite way around as well. We can sometimes get fed up with our 
partners, because we're not actually getting enough meaning at work, we sort of are expecting our partners because our work is a bit of a drudge to make, you know, life alleluia every time we walk through the door. It can work the opposite way around as well, can't it? Yes. And I think that's what every leader, every manager in work has to realize that people are bringing their whole lives to work. So whatever happens to them in their personal lives is going to affect their work in the daily life. And then whatever happens in the work life, we bring home. For us to say that there's a big divide between the minute I leave work is, I believe, not realistic. I think even if you try you know, not to think about work on the weekends, there is always some, some emotional perspective that's going to be coming in. And so it's for us to realize that we're full human, holistic human beings and that We need to realize that the one area is affecting the other area. And this is one of the core principles, and it seems like a really good one, but I'm not quite certain how to do it. Detect the meaning of life's moments. So why is that important and how do we do it? This is really as we're relating to there is meaning in every moment of life. Now, some people misinterpret that saying that, okay, let's stop everything. Every time I take a drink of water or I make dinner or I get on a bus, I should think about the meaning of this. Now, that might be a little bit too extreme because (laughs) it would slow down our entire day. But when we do have these challenges or we need feel that we need to take a wider perspective on life, we should really detect the meaning of life's moments. And what this really means is that our moments of our day build up to our day, which builds up to our week, which builds up to our year, which builds up to our life. And we are responsible for weaving our own, what we call a tapestry, our own life. We are the ones creating our experiences Even though some experiences might happen to us, like getting cancer or being fired or, you know, being laid off or losing money, etc. We are the ones who are building our life based on our reaction. So detecting the meaning of life's moments means we need to stop. We need to create awareness and we need to do something which we call existential digging, which is really digging for the meaning in this situation this particular situation. And there's four steps to that. Why don't we walk through it with an example so we can do your four steps and use an example so that would bring it to life for us? Okay. So let's do an example of, you know, most people have challenges with relationships. And so this is where we feel the most challenge, I think, in finding meaning or not meaning. And so we'll go specifically to the workplace. So we'll say that we're not getting along with our boss or superior leader, let's say. And so say you had a big row or a big challenge with one of your leaders and you're about to quit the job because you're so fed up. So you come home from the day and you're, as you said, it could affect your home life as well. And you're so fed up, but this is where we need to stop and do a little existential digging or digging for the meaning. So there's four steps to that as far as we're predicting. The first one is thinking about how did I respond? So how did I respond to this? Did I fly off the handle? Did I all of a sudden fight back? Did I say words I shouldn't have now in hindsight, etc.? How did I respond to it? Number two is how did I feel? How did I feel about maybe getting into this argument with my boss or my leader? What are the deeper elements and the meaning of this feeling? Maybe I've always felt like that because... I've always not liked anyone telling me what to do. If you had great awareness, you might have challenges with people. You want to have a type of work where you can be more self-directed and you don't really fit into this culture. So maybe I feel like this because I feel trapped. The third one is what did I learn? What did I learn? Well, this is really, I'm learning that maybe I am in the wrong situation because I'd rather do work individually than have to every day deal with this type of boss who is micromanaging me and telling me all the little steps I need to do. I feel like I've grown as a person that I can work on my own and be self-disciplined. And so maybe it's time for me to seek a different type of work. So we said, how did you respond? How did you feel? What did you learn? And now the most important one is step number four is how am I now going to grow from this? So in doing all this, detecting the meaning of life's moments, existential meaning digging, how am I going to grow? Because a lot of times we get into the loop, we'll call it the continuous loop of complaining, but (laughs) going back for more. 
and then complaining and going back for more and complaining and going back for more without really stopping to say, how did I respond? How do I feel? How did I, what am I learning from this situation? And then importantly, how am I going to grow? And a lot of times growing might involve changing the situation. And so maybe getting a different job within that organization or finding a different work setting or even working on your own that you feel you can grow more as a person. I think it's really important with this to be really aware of your feelings because we sort of go along the surface a lot of the time and we're not truly aware of our feelings. We think we're frustrated. I accept all feelings in my room. The exception is frustrated because frustrated is normally covering up another feeling, which might be sadness or might be anger. But unless you actually really know your feelings, you can't actually begin to understand yourself. And you, without understanding yourself, you don't actually get to the point of finding the meaning. Exactly. And that's why feelings is the second one is like, it's easy to say, I know how I responded. Oh, I said these words and maybe I shouldn't have, right? Or maybe I did the right thing in my mind, etc. But number two is yes, getting in touch with your feelings. And maybe that's where you need to talk it out with other people. Maybe you do need a therapist to help you uncover your real feelings, not just, as you said, your service feelings. But I think sometimes we we look at frustration as a negative. And I personally look at frustration, although it's an emotional issue, I look at it as an opportunity. Because if you are frustrated about a certain dealings with relationships with a certain person, or you're frustrated about a certain work situation, I actually think you're on your path to getting to something positive. Because when you're frustrated, it means something needs to change. And you're frustrated, now you can ignore it, and you can keep going back into the same loop, as I call it, going back into the same situation. But if you're frustrated over and over and over again with the same things or the same situation, it means that it's time for you to grow. It's time for you to learn and grow. Those are steps number three and four. To sort of say, uh, I'm in this loop, and I need to now look for different opportunities because my soul, my spirit is getting trapped and it's telling me it's time for growth. So let's look at another one of these principles, which really resonated with me. And that was don't work against yourself. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds really important. First of all, before we unpick it, what exactly does it mean? Well, I think if we do create that awareness of ourselves, we'll realize in certain situations that we actually have sabotaged ourselves. Oh, you know, it's the easiest thing is to blame someone else. And I think actually, and in, in I'll do a broader comment on society right now, we're really looking for all the ways we are victims. We're always victims of everybody else. And yet, I think sometimes we're victims of ourselves. How can we be victims of ourselves at work? Okay, at work, don't work against yourself. When we become so fixated, on a certain outcome or an intent that we want that we actually work against ourselves. So at work, when we are wanting a promotion, and so we start asking our boss or our leader, when do you think I'll be promoted? And her or his response are, well, when you achieve these certain goals, or maybe at the end of the year, we'll discuss it, etc. And you let it go for about a week, but then you go into their office the next time and say, when do you think I'll be promoted? And it starts to irritate your boss or your leader because they want you to focus on getting the job done versus focused on when you're going to get promoted. And so you're becoming so hyper-focused, hyper-focused on when you're getting that promotion that actually there might be steps that you're taking that are sabotaging, A, irritating people by always asking the same question. Being probably not focusing on doing the best job that you can do, etc. So that's a situation where you might be working against yourself, and it's really paradoxical intention. Paradoxical intention is that you want a certain goal or an objective, and you're actually not doing the best steps to achieve that. It could also happen in your health. If you're so fixated on your health that you're actually not doing the things that you should be doing to be really healthy. And it's causing so much stress, which in turn is actually 
detrimental to your body instead of being relaxed and enjoying life, which is helpful to your body. Now, one of the things that stops us enjoying work is those horrible, annoying colleagues, you know, the one that's really selfish or is irritating or is self-obsessed. How do you stop them from sabotaging your meaning at work? Well, first of all, we have to think, well, I wonder what people are saying about me. Maybe I'm horrible. (laughs) Maybe I'm the horrible person or maybe I'm the actual person who can't get along with everyone. So I think that might bring a little humor or levity to the situation where it's not always the other person. There's always two people in a relationship. And there's cause and effect. And so you might be actually causing some of the negative behavior that you're actually seeing. So in the metaphysical world, we call it the law of attraction. So you're attracting what you're putting out. And so that sometimes when you're dealing with difficult people, you might be the catalyst that's causing some of the difficulty. So I'll start there. (laughs) How do we deal with people at work that we don't like? Well, it's a situation that we're not going to like everybody at work. Like, as I said earlier, life is not a straight line. Expect some deviance from the line. Well, the same as work. You cannot probably put 30 people in a room and expect everyone's personality on every day to gel very well. I mean, it is a role of a leader to draw out the best in people and to have people hopefully focused on a common goal, which will help people overcome these smaller personality traits, et cetera, so that we focus on a goal. But you can't expect that everyone's going to get along every day with everybody. In So how do we deal with that? We gravitate to the people that we resonate with. They are the ones that are going to, we'll call it filling the buckets. They're the ones that are going to fill up our bucket or our well of enjoyment and meaning. And we're going to try and limit our time with people that drain us, that complain, that are not on the same wavelength, et cetera, because they're going to be taking things out of our bucket. And so people say, well, that's impossible because my immediate boss is one who drains me. And say, okay, well, you need to focus, first of all, on the higher level, what is the work that you need to be done and do the best job you can on the work and then not overreact to every criticism or every comment, etc. Because once we start looking for negativity, we will find it. But once you start looking for positivity, you can find it. So I'm not being Pollyanna. I've worked my whole career in uh, corporate and government life. And so I understand politics and I understand personal dynamics. But there are ways around it for you to find your own personal meaning so that you can recharge yourself. I always like the phrase from Alcoholics Anonymous, you spot it, you got it. And so if you are finding somebody is selfish and self-obsessed, sometimes we're very good at policing our own failings. So it's actually quite useful to actually ask ourselves, when am I selfish and when am I self-obsessed? Rather than putting the bits that we don't like and can't accept on ourselves, projecting them out onto the woman or the man sitting at the desk next to us. Yes. And that's exactly why we call the book Prisoners of Our Thoughts not prisoners of your thoughts. If we're going to call a book prisoners of your thoughts, then people want to hand out a hundred copies to everybody that they're working with. But it's prisoners of our thoughts because all of us in some way are prisoners of our thoughts. So in the book, you ask lots of useful questions that we should ask ourselves. And I'm going to turn this background on to you because one of your questions is, what hardships in your life have you learned from? So what hardships in your life have you learned from, Elaine? Well, I've had I've had a very blessed life and at the same time I've had a lot of struggles. I'll say as I mentioned as a child, well I was 12, so I guess that's child entering teenage years, which are tough years. My mother contracted cancer and it really threw the family into chaos because we weren't ready for that and we didn't know how to discuss it and it was uh, an issue where my parents didn't want to discuss the whole situation and I think in hindsight One, it wasn't socially acceptable to talk about cancer years ago, but I think it was also they were dealing with their own struggles. So as I got older, I realized that it wasn't all about me and them taking care of me during that passage of time. It was really, they were struggling with it too. So 
that gave me a lot of grounding in my life, which only as I got older did I realize the lessons therein. Only when I got older did I realize the meaning that situation had for me. And did you find any meaning working at Procter & Gamble, which are, they make products like soap powders and things like that. Did you find any meaning there? Yes, actually I did, because this is a great situation. I personally have low interest in laundry detergent or soap or toothpaste or diapers, etc. So I would give it a maybe a three out of 10 on the interest of the actual product. That high? Yes, I'll give it three because I am curious about new products. So I always find something, oh, what's new, exciting about new products. I would give it a a six out of 10 though in what I learned. I learned a lot about how to run a business. I learned a lot about how to bring all the different departments together on a project. I learned a lot about project planning. I learned a lot about marketing, etc. But I would give it a 9 or a 10 out of 10 on the people. The people that I worked with, I still keep in touch with with these co-workers from years ago. We were young and we had so much fun working there, but it was also a high-pressure, high-stress job. Procter & Gamble is known as probably one of the best marketing companies as far as discipline in their marketing approach. So yes, okay, I worked on Tide laundry soap. But what the content of the job, I learned a lot about business, but I would say the people I worked with were incredible. So this is where you find meaning in different parts of the job. And I actually can't remember how much. I probably wasn't paid that much either. So let's say it was like one out of 10 on the money, (laughs) three out of 10 on the products, five out of six out of 10 on the learning the tasks of business, but nine or 10 on the people. And you're probably using some of those skills that you learned back then still today. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Am I right? Yes. Actually, I wrote a best-selling book called The Seeds of Innovation. And a lot of what's in The Seeds of Innovation, I can trace back to what I learned years ago at Procter & Gamble. So a lot of the thought process on strategic thinking and even creative thinking. And actually, the book also has about transformational thinking on how to sell ideas within a company, because a lot of times with innovation, we get so excited about our new idea, we think everybody else is going to see the brilliance in it, and they don't. And so I learned a lot back from my business careers and innovation on actually how to sell an idea so that somebody else will be excited enough to work on that idea and making it a reality. So I think that that brings a point is that We are detecting the meaning of life's moments, but we also want to detect the meaning of our life's journey is that all these experiences contribute in some way to who we are today and also the work that we work on today. We can't just say, I'll forget everything I've ever learned. No, when you're facing situations, you think, oh, I remember how I dealt with this before. And so whether it's in your personal life or your work life, you're weaving your own journey of meaning. I think that's a really interesting point. We're not just thinking about how we're making our life meaningful today, we're thinking of the whole journey. And we're going to look at that idea of the whole journey in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, one of the great advantages of joining our supporters club is that you get a chance to write in and tell us about something that you would like help from me and one of my guests. And we've got one of those letters I'm going to share with Elaine in just a moment. And at higher levels of support, you can get all sorts of other added benefits, like um, a heart circle, which I'm going to be starting soon, where you're going to be trained to really listen and trained to speak from the heart. And both of those two things are incredibly important for finding a meaningful life. So here's our letter. It's from a woman in her 50s. I have a good job, I have responsibility, and I feel valued by my immediate boss and the larger company in which we work. My job has provided a good living for me and my children, but it seems to have consumed a big chunk of my time and energy. 
Lots of my female friends are envious of my success and the security that comes with it, but I often feel alone. It is hard being the only woman at my level in a company which mainly employs men. When colleagues have problems, they stop by my desk and I listen and help, but I have nowhere to turn myself. I want something more from life, but I'm not certain what, and I feel I would be stupid to give up a good job that I've worked so hard to get. Help! So, Elaine, how could you help this woman? Well, first of all, it's always good to actually meet the person because I think when people write a letter, there's always more to it. And so we need to draw out more clues as to really what is going on. I'll answer your question without the benefit of actually knowing all the situation and also offer some things maybe that she could consider. Let's circle back to Victor Frankl and our first principle in Prisoners of Our Thoughts. Number one is exercise the freedom to choose your attitude. So in every situation, we can choose our attitude. And in this situation, I would ask her to consider choosing a positive attitude of the situation. So when she says, I have no one to turn to, I would like to, if she was sitting in front of me, like to draw out more of that because it sounds like a victim statement. I have no one to turn to versus maybe she feels she has no one to turn to just in that specific department, or maybe it's a broader thing that she has no one to turn to in her personal life to talk about some of her challenges at work. So we want to make sure that she takes steps to expand a network so that she can have, it, it doesn't have to be 10 people. It can just be one or two good friends or a relative, et cetera, or a, possibly a coworker in another department to share her ideas and share her feelings so that she feels that she's not alone. So that is something that at first sort of jumped out at me is I have no one to share my feelings with. As I said before, also, it feels like she wants more out of life. And maybe I'm just reading into that, but I, I feel like she wants more out of life. And we are all on this process of becoming more and learning and growing. And in my opinion, life is about learning and growing. And so I think out of this frustration, I would suggest to her to feel not trapped, but to feel like it's time to explore. So maybe it's time to explore a higher level. Maybe she is ready for more responsibility in that specific job. Maybe it's to explore horizontally. Maybe there's another department where she would fit more with her coworkers. Maybe it's time for her to look elsewhere to another company where she would fit better and would learn and grow more. And maybe it's time for her to look at some entrepreneurial aspects. If people are coming to her for advice now, maybe that's a sign that she would be a great consultant because people are coming to her for advice. I remember back when I, and I'll give a quick example, when I worked in corporate life, I was always interested in helping people learn new skills outside of the actual tasks that we were doing in our department. And so for all the people that worked with me, when we had staff meetings on Monday mornings, we would discuss all the projects that were going on, but I'd always take 10 minutes and teach a lesson, which is both a life lesson and a business lesson. And people kept saying, oh, you should write this down or you should write a book. You should write a book. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good writer. I don't, it's not something on my path. I'm not interested. But later on, I realized those were all clues of people telling me you're actually a good writer. And this is very interesting information. So Years later, probably about 15 years later, I did write a book. So these are clues when people say I'm coming to you for support means that she maybe would be really good at a job that has more of that in it. That's really good that there are clues there already, but you're just not actually picking them all up and putting them together. I like that idea. One of the things that strikes me is she says, I've put all my time and energy into work. And it's very easy for us to take our work home with us, particularly as the boundaries between home and work are very, very quickly dissolving. How do you stop your work from eating you up? Well, this is where we have personal responsibility, right? Is that she, is that a victim statement or is that a statement of meaning and, and strength? Because I would ask, why is work filling every hour of your personal life. And so is it because you're feeling so stressed and you have fear that you're not doing a good job and they're just, you don't know how to say no, et cetera? 
Or is it because there's nothing that you're building to be fulfilled in your personal life, being other relationships, being fitness, being hobbies, etc. The worst you know, situation people can have is that they work for 50 years and retire and have no, we'll call them legs of the stool. There was only one leg and it was all about work. And we've seen so much depression and anxiety and people that have retired because they haven't built a fulfilled life in different areas of their life. And if you want some advice on that, there's another in this series of podcasts on the beginner's mind, how to get out of a rut with Tom Vanderbilt, who tried lots and lots of new things. None of the skills were of any use whatsoever, like windsurfing, but it gave him a curiosity about the world. What I would say is I think it's very important to catch yourself when you are thinking about work in the middle of the night or you know, when you're at home preparing supper, and you gently escort your mind away from that thought, you know, because actually there's nothing you can do about that at the moment. Just put your attention to what you're doing at this moment. Focus on uh, cooking the supper so that you don't let the work come in quite so much. What do you suggest about security? Because this is really difficult because uh, jobs give us security, but it also, they tie us down. How do you get the balance right? I would say, what is the word security? Is that financial security or is that personal security? Because what are you really saying by security? Because as we've known in the recent pandemic, these jobs can disappear in one day. And so what we need to work toward is actually maybe on the financial side, trying our hardest to save a little bit of money for these rainy days. I know that's difficult for people that are at a situation where they need every penny to live on or every dollar to live on. But security is an interesting thing is we think we're going to be secure because we're in a certain job or certain relationship where we have a certain amount of money. These are all external to us. And although that's valid, we also need to build our internal security. And how do you build internal security? Well, by finding meaning and by practicing these core principles in Prisoners of Our Thoughts is that we need to put ourselves in a situation where we are stretched and that we can learn and grow and where we can build some of this resilience. If we stay in the same situation for 50 years, think we're going to live in the same house, on the same street, with the same job, with the same relationship, and not expect anything to change, that's not reality. Even though we think we're keeping things the same, the entire world around us is changing. And so that's not going to help us build resilience. Do you think there's a crisis of meaning in the world? Yes, I do. I definitely think there's a crisis of meaning. I've written many articles about the crisis of meaning. I think we're only starting to talk about it. I think that we've been focused on a lot of different topics. I think it's really interesting that dictionary.com, which is an online dictionary, picked the word existential as the word of the year for 2019. And this is even before the pandemic, where people were asking, what is the meaning of my existence? What is the meaning of the existence of our work? What is the truer, deeper purpose of our work? And what is the meaning of our existence as a planet, as a total global world? So existential is a word that I before thought was quite an academic word that most people would not use in their common day languages. But when dictionary.com picked it as the word of the year, you realize there has been a lot of people starting to focus on their existence their existence of their work, existence of others, existence of the planet, etc. And close related, obviously, is that existential philosophy is all about philosophy of meaning, so finding the meaning. So your best piece of advice for us to find meaning in our life? To realize that life is a journey. I know people have said that before, but life is a journey and that it's up to us to find meaning in the important moments of our life and that the search for meaning is ongoing. And it's not just, oh, okay, I found the meaning of life <laughs> and now life is over. Life is constantly changing. And even if we don't want it to change, 
other people are changing it for us. I found the meaning of life. It had slipped down the back of the sofa. Okay, there you go. Okay. So you can just relax and enjoy life. No, no. And, and really to catch ourselves and to not be victims that a lot of times we are blaming, as you say, prisoners of your thoughts, always blaming it on other people when really it is my life and I really need to find fulfillment for myself and to realize there's going to be challenges. So I have to find the meaning in them. Yes, I I work a lot with couples and often they have a long list of what you could do differently and the list of what they could do differently themselves, what could I do differently, is a very short list indeed. Or they blame, once you change, I can start to change, but you have to do it first. Exactly. So thank you very much for being my guest on The Meaningful Life. So we have to turn the spotlight on you and ask what makes your life meaningful, Elaine? Well, thank you, Andrew, first of all, for inviting me to share this time with you and to share our thoughts on meaning, because what makes my life meaningful is my constant looking for meaning. And I know that you'd say, well, that's just because that's in your book. What makes my life meaningful is seeking out opportunities to speak with people like you on the topic of meaning, but also to keep pushing myself to learn and grow as much as I can. I would have thought at the beginning of life, I liked mathematics and I liked business and I thought I'd be in corporate world forever. But then I got into innovation, I got into new products, I got into new ideas, and then I got into self-development and how people could be more creative in their lives. And now I'm into metaphysics, philosophy, psychology, and meaning. And so who would have known that that was my life journey to date? But what makes my life meaningful is I know that I have, well, I hope that have many years of exploring and Who knows where the past is going to take me, but I know curiosity and opportunities are going to be there. That's a wonderful um, philosophy to have, curiosity. I love that. Thank you very much for being my guest today. This is where the conversation ends with Elaine, but it doesn't end for everybody because if you're a member of our supporters circle, you'll find out what I've taken away from today's interview. And Elaine's going to share a little bit of what, what she has looked at differently from talking today. And I'm going to find out the three things she knows to be true. If you'd like to be part of that conversation, here comes the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.